Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema, but not just cinema today. We're joined by friend of the pod and painter extraordinaire, Louis Bennett. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to talk about movies about artists, both fictional and in the biopic sense. May I just jump in and say we're talking about movies about painters because mm. <laughs> we had to draw the line somewhere. So we've um, sort of excluded films about sculptors and photographers and sort of other art practitioners to focus on painters. So Camille Claudel fans out there, we're sorry, but we'll we'll satisfy <laughs> you again another time. Do you know any sculptors? Any uh, cinephile sculptors? I do, actually. Yeah. I'm going to tell them not to listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Louis, you're currently exhibiting at the, at the Kristen Schellig Gerda. Nice. Gallery yeah. in uh, Wandsworth. Mm-hmm. We went to see it last week, and it was, uh, yeah, Emma just did a chef's kiss, uh, <laughs> which I think sums it up. That's all I could hope for. It was a fantastic show, dear listener. If you're London-based... Get your ass to it because it's so much better than looking at this stuff on Instagram. But I love your paintings anyway, Louis. Whichever way I choose to see this, is... thank you, man. Um, but it was terrific. We'll be asking you questions about that. I'm really pleased you guys got to see it. Yeah, I think it was essential we got to see it before we recorded, and mm-hmm. I'm so glad you work on quite a large scale. Mm-hmm. And seeing them, uh, what's the biggest I mentioned? They're like two, I don't know, two wide. Uh, like two meters by one and a half. Yeah. So they occupy a lot of space and uh, there's so much going on on these canvases. It was very cool to see them up close. Uh, that exhibition runs until the end of July. Yeah, 31st of July is the last day. And it's going to Berlin in January? No, different show. Different show? I have a different show in Berlin uh, early next year. Very um, prolific, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that always, always blows my mind when I'm chatting to Louis. It's like, I'm just painting, killed two paintings. <laughs> but I guess that's something we'll talk about on this show as well, because a lot of the best scenes in these films capture painters at their real fervour. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, editing for sure. ratchets it up or whatever. So Some better than others. <laughs> Definitely. The show is called Aerial, by the way. Your last show, Tears Like Northern Rain, was also terrific. So uh, look that up on the internet. They're all there to see. Uh... Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Google me. <laughs> So for this episode, we've watched a bunch of films. It's a real classic film graze in that respect, you know, the 40 film filmography or something like that. Between <laughs> us, we've seen all different sides of what the lives of painters are shown to be by certain filmmakers. And we're trying to separate the, the myth from the legend, from the truth <laughs> um, here. So we'll be asking you what's true, what's real, what's fake. But just going to say it now. Some of the best films I've ever seen in my life are about painters and I can't mm. wait to talk about certain classics mm. and also I've seen some proper shite ones as well. <laughs> but I'm also looking forward to talking about those. I'm just going to jump straight in because I'm not sure it will come up again. But 
I feel like I've only tried to watch ones that I think I would like really for this. So we're going to talk about a lot of cool art house depictions of artists or sort of interrogations of artists' lives and their work. But the one that like I really hated, I saw it in the cinema with my mum and my sister. Maybe even brought this up on the pod before, but it was Mrs. Lowry and Son, the Timothy Spall, Vanessa Redgrave. I can't remember who wrote or directed it, dramatises um, Lowry and his mother's relationship. It was like one of the most turgid cinematic experiences I've ever had. <laughs> a real sort of heritage film. You know, it was just dead. And I, I guess a lot of the films we're going to be talking about are really sort of the antithesis of that and a real sort of interrogations of their subject. I'm just going to bring up my one of those because I don't have anything else to say about it, but I had one of those about 10 years ago going to see Miss Potter. Do you anyone remember that? About Beatrix Potter starring uh, yeah. Renee Zellweger. Oh my I god, yeah. Like, Mom, that was rubbish. <laughs> Again, that's like the definition of a heritage film. Yeah. If we're looking at this sort of schematically, mm. um, a film that sort of promulgates myths or like sort of gentle, um, sort of like <laughs> liberal values. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 you sure. know, just like wet shit, basically. Um, I almost clicked play on that Renoir film from 2012 so many times when preparing for this part. I thought, I can't do it to myself. I'm not a fool. And I haven't watched it, dear listener, you'll be happy to know. Are there any especially egregious examples for you, Louis, that you want to just get out of the way that you don't think will come uh, up? You know, tell us not to ask about. Not once the one come up, but like, I did, I felt like Lust for Life, the Kirk Douglas Van Gogh film, it's, Emmett's currently holding up. Douglas's face on the front of the book. It's on the cover of John A. Walker's Art and Artists on screen. It is, for this guy, the film. Yeah. Artists on film. I get screened at the BFI like every year. Well, I watched it today. Yeah, it's seminal whether you enjoy it or not. Yeah. Um, I can see it. It's yeah, like. It's a cum stain. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a definitively over the top kind of mythologizing of an artist's life. But. It's just so absurd that it, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I enjoy it on a very different level. To it. I enjoy, like, a lot of these other films, like, because it's so absurd. And it's yeah. still it's still good, you know, but it's just so ridiculous, like... It's... But it's one of, the, like, the funniest films I've ever seen at the same time. <laughs> we were, like, we were quoting it beforehand, and, like, it's amazing. Theo, can't you see? I'm an artist. My job <laughs> is to break down the wall between thought and expression. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he said that. Um, but yeah, we will be talking about it because it is, for better or for worse, a pivotal moment in the development of the Hollywood biopic. Yeah, also it's part of the sort of body of films that look at Van Gogh as one of the sort of most ubiquitous sort of biopic. I think there's about a hundred Van Hooch films, man. <laughs> I'm going, that's what I'm going for. Is that what I'm going yeah, for? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't want to say Van because uh, it's a bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> can't Van do it every Hooch time. Is you know. Van Hooch. Van Hooch. <laughs> but we're not beholden to fact on this podcast. We're also down to look at what certain filmmakers would imagine the life of an artist to be. Isn't that right, Louis? You recommended us the uh, horse's mouth. Yeah, when when I when we asked you to come on this, that was I think the first film you mentioned to us. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, it's an amazing film. Uh, when's it from, Sam? 1958, and it's adapted from a 1944 novel 
adapted by its star Alec Guinness for screen. Yeah. Um, and directed by Ronald Neen. Do you know what else he directed? I nah. <laughs> You've got us that old time in Hampstead and find out, man. <laughs> um, from uh, a Joyce Carey novel as well. From like the mid fifties, I think, the novel. And all the paintings in the film were made by John Bratby, who like from the sort of early mid fifties was like a real like star of kind of the London art world and one of the main proponents of like kitchen sink painting, which was uh, this term to do with you know kitchen sink like film as well. Mm-hmm. The, like, the this critic David Sylvester, who was kind of like the big dog of like London critics at the time, he like coined that term, and other painters like Edward Middleditch was like another one. But yeah, Bratby was commissioned to make all of the paintings for the, this fictional artist. Gully Jimson in uh, The Horse's Mouth, and I think they're incredible. I think probably of any of these films, like, they held the biggest attraction for me of, like, looking at the paintings in the film, you know? I think the act of looking at the paintings in the film is, like, a central aspect of it as well. One of the first times we really have a sort of intimate moment with Alec Guinness's character is when he gets back to his houseboat yeah, the yeah. studio after getting out of Wormwood Scrubs. And he lights a match and holds it up to this huge canvas and sort of follows the shapes that he's painted on it and is sort of describing it like, oh, that's one of the best books I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> he has a crazy voice in it as well. Um, but yeah, the scale of the paintings is remarkable as well. Yeah. It's a really interesting style. I'm not sure how similar it is to uh, Bradby's normal style. Yeah, because what, what you were saying about like the coinage of kitchen sink or whatever. Yeah. So at odds to the paintings in this film to me, or whatever, which is so expressive. Mm. I think, like, the kitchen sink stuff, Bradley came out maybe around 52, I want to say, and all his paintings were of his, like, dingy London house with his sort of, um, his wife and kids looking depressed, surrounded by cornflakes packets and, like, dirty toilets and, you know kind of like just scenes of like a grim London life of like near poverty. But then like Bratby, I guess his like imagination was like quite extreme and sort of feverish and uh, he sort of quite quickly became something else and I think the film probably gave him license to like really go crazy and like make something really expressionistic and you know not tied to like the realism that he like kind of broke out with. Kitchen sink without the realism. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I guess most of the painting in this film is done on the wall of like this palatial flat in Pimlico or wherever yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be. And then there's the mural at the end <sighs> that gets destroyed. Yeah, they go into a church, they sort of colonise a condemned church. Yeah. It's like, you know, got a sign on the front. It's very like Simpsons esque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A sign <laughs> being like, Schedule for demolition, and then another sign being like, Grand exhibition! <laughs> like, um, I guess it is a real... That point makes me think about its representation of London as something yeah. that's like changing and its depiction of London is very dissimilar to how it looks now. I've yeah. already mentioned the beginning of the film where... Yeah, Oxbridge Road is fucking... Yeah. Chubby and the gang saw that. <laughs> <Yeah. up. laughs> when, it, when he comes out of... Um, Wormwood, I said he comes out of Wormwood Scrubs at the beginning. Um, the, 
it starts with a tracking shot that goes from like a railway bridge through these like sort of terrace uh, yards and then um, you get to the gates of Worm Scrubs and then when I realised it was that I had to rewind and like <laughs> yeah. try and process what I was seeing in relation <laughs> to what it looks like now um, and that's like already like a relatively like suburban area in the grand scheme of London um, it has like other like dockside stuff yeah. that really brings to bear how much London has changed in that period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is a film that's meant to be about like a contemporary artist, but it has that sort of like historical quality watching it now because it's like over 60 years old. Yeah, yeah. One thing I really appreciated about this film, definitely against a lot of the other films that we've watched for this, is that like there's no doubt that Gully, despite being a sort of unsavory character, is an amazing artist. Mm. And it's about like giving him the freedom to create and I guess this ties into like Brat B getting to work on this film and like then being able to put out the budgets and this being like a proper film where he can work on these giant canvases or whatever but mm. even when he's like swindling the old like Margaret Demont style like dowagers or whatever yeah there's no like struggle for him to express himself as an artist he's just yeah, sick yeah. Like, he's just a cool guy. Flows, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Whereas, yeah, just to state this, I guess, sort of obvious obverse of that, but so many of these films are about, like, artists that have been critically reappraised mm. long after their death, but, you know, die, like, a sort of sad death and not being recognised. Sure. It's an interesting tension with the other big British comedy film about art, which came out a couple of years after, which I don't believe either of you folks have seen, but that's The Rebel, starring Tony Hancock, a film I really struggle with, actually, where the art world, it was just, like, a big excuse to make jokes about, like, mid-century tastes or whatever. Yeah. Tony Hancock character, who I believe is called Tony Hancock. Um, <laughs> this is after he'd been making, like, his sitcom, kind of like Seinfeld, like, he's playing a sort of fictionalised version of himself. But, yeah, Anthony Hancock, someone who I don't really understand why he's funny, honestly. I don't really... I've never got him and I spent a lot of time with him but he was very significant very well respected um, he quits his job working in a bank because he wants to be an artist and then he moves to Paris where like they respect artists but I guess the joke is that like he's really really shit at painting and he's just he paints like the Arc de Triomphe and it's like just a like a matte colour and then just like an arc or whatever but he's mm. like there's all these jokes about how he's like inventing this new uh childist school or infantilist school is the yeah. term that they use in the film and everyone's like oh this is genius or whatever yeah, yeah. and then the art critic played by george sanders from all about even stuff pulls up and he's like got to pretend that someone else has done the paintings that he's done but it's all it's all cynical and it's not i feel like as a casual appreciator of art i really didn't appreciate the sort of line this film was going down even though it's just a cynical comedy movie and it has like two sequences that are lifted from the horse's mouth which was made two years before so like, yeah, i don't yeah. know how yeah come on like how can you be so like, <laughs> how can you have so little uh impetus I mean, behind your filmmaking it can be like really funny to take the piss out of artists and hey. the art world like i can't really think of many films that yeah, really just uh, like what, what I think The Square is probably the funniest comedy film that's come out in the last like ten years, and that's De definitely that's not that's the one that I. But have they're not taking the piss out of painting, <laughs> are they? They're taking no. the piss out of like installation art the whole time and, and like PR. general like sort of gallery culture and yeah. yeah the whole like sort of consumption of art um, rather than the sort of practice of art. Yeah, um, but yeah, that is a classic. 
Is it the film Dinner for Schmucks where Jermaine Clement is like playing an artist? Have you seen that? I haven't. I've seen the French original. It's like absolutely. He's so funny in it, man. He's like just this like absurd artist, like talking down to Paul Rudd because Paul Rudd's not an artist. Just he's like you've been stuck broken too long, my friend, and stuff like that. (laughs) That's like one of the funniest depictions of it. But, yeah, it's, it's with the rebel, I can see it's not, like, I don't know, if you just, like, an entire film just completely cynical about about the art world, it's, like, not that funny, you know? I didn't laugh once. Yeah. I winced quite a lot. It made me feel quite sad. It's not a horse's mouth. My dad loves it, though. Shout out. Shout, shout out Bruce Bennett. I'm sorry, Mr. Bennett. <laughs> I'm in your favourite film. I think a film that we all are very attached to is Peter Greenaway's The Draftman's Contract from 1982 about a fictional painter, Mr. Neville, played by Anthony Higgins, set in 1694. He is contracted to draw 12 pictures of like a country estate, but then gets embroiled in this sort of like sexual... (laughs) <laughs> like sort of power play uh, it's a you know it's a classic Peter Greenaway film I love this movie we're going to talk about Night Watching like way later I guess but yeah it was his first I guess fictional is like a difficult word to use here because like the falls he made before this is like a sort of crypto Wikipedia film <laughs> or whatever and then he made this film which is very relevant to us talking about a real artist but it's about a fictional artist and also it's a film about the production of 12 technical drawings like probably the least like uh, creative in inverted commas or whatever like commission an artist could possibly receive but then the way that this sort of conspiracy and like this weird murder plot and stuff are interwoven into the art and the art is done by Greenway himself and it's done yeah. I guess with like rulers and protractors yeah there's lots of like sort of grids over the drawings and like these interesting framings as a you know it's of the artist gaze it's 12 elevations or angles on this like splendid jacobean mansion it's a classic greenaway trope the like incredibly structured tight composition Mm -hmm. like he really came out of the gate with that shit Mm -hmm. like I think the drawings themselves are amazing and like Greenaway's as a painter was is just brilliant like you know let alone like the genius of his films like Draftsman's Contract is probably always like jostling for like my favourite film ever also probably like the best soundtrack of any film ever made like don't even chat to me about that (laughs) yeah that's the Michael Nyman like sort of galloping harpsichord music yeah 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 it's actually sensational it's amazing there's so much to love about this film I think and also we like one of the key things about the drawings in the film is that like the central thing of the film like classic Greenaway is that there's this murder that's taken place off screen and then each drawing offers some clue to like the perpetrator of the murder or like what actually happened and the sort of if you feel like the characters are like laying out clues to be seen by the artist and he's like not even aware completely that he's like taking part in this kind of building of clues yeah he's a pawn yeah yeah he thinks that he's in complete control of the situation he's like leveraging this kind of like sexual power 
as well over the the family but like he's actually the one being played you know mm. i think this was, it's just got a really interesting relationship between like the really interesting films about transcending class recently or whatever like we watched celine and julie carboiting on the weekend and like never read so much marks into it before or whatever but this is a film where like the whole milieu of that he's working for is just an object to them or whatever even though mm. this is like this guy's life's work and he's got to spend like a year working on these like intricate technical drawings mm. just so they can like hang up some cool shit in their house the other really amazing illustration of that i think i know we're not talking about sculptures on this episode <laughs> but um there's jokes where like there's someone who's like head to toe in like black paint or whatever yeah. i guess it looks it could like ring some alarm bells for you watching if you disagree with uh you know blackface or whatever as no, we all as we always, no, 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 no 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 but like when i first watched it's it nice i was to look like a statue yeah 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 like but when a... i when i first watched it i was like oh it's a bit fucking weird or whatever but yeah he's, he's supposed to look like a statue an outdoor statue and he's standing still and he's in the background of loads of these frames and then he just like descends from his yeah there's a great one where he gets up he like moves a cone off a plinth mm. and then just starts pissing like a yeah, 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 and yeah. stuff like that just constantly it's, um, pissing it's the opposite of um, don't let the river beast get you which I would recommend to all of you folks which has the funniest joke I've ever seen in like the last scene where like a dude has died and then they make a statue in tribute to him but it's like a really low budget movie and the dude just like appears in like full like silver paint as if he's like he's playing a statue of himself <laughs> it's so funny also the thing about mr neville kind of you know he's using his art to like to be a social climber to like transcend class mm. and find himself in a different class milieu like that's like a massive thing in the horse's mouth like this sort of like grubby bourgeois but like po- like poverty stricken artist golly jimson he's like sort of tricks his way into like this beautiful apartment of these like incredibly posh you know aristocrats Mm. and that's like i think that's very of a time that kind of maybe of a lot of different times but not of this time is like artists being able to like you know use their creativity to like become super mobile class-wise sure sure yeah i'd say that the sort of relationship between painting or the creative arts in general and sort of marketability or the economy or money is like a real central aspect in so many of these films and a source of sort of narrative tension or Mm. just like general sort of existential commentary you see it in really every one of them the ones looking at the early modern period tend to link that to patronage Mm. Um, whereas, you know, the ones set in the 19th century, we'll talk about these Van Gogh ones, Edward Munch, Pyrrhus Marni, like any, any of these ones are all about, you know, galleries and, you know, art sales in that context. Yeah. You know, it's an inescapable aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was such a great element of um, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, where um, it's always weird watching, like, Mike Lee's historical films or whatever, when you feel like, oh, how much of a Mike Lee film is this going to be? But, like, there's like three or four scenes in that set at the Royal Academy where Turner, played by Timothy Spall, there's just this extreme discomfort and disrespect every time he walks into the RA, right? Mm. Everyone's looking at him. Everyone thinks like his paintings are irrational and they don't mean shit or whatever. And they also don't want to be associated with him mm. or whatever. But there's plenty more things to talk about. That's interesting. That's not totally how I s- saw huh. it. Like he's... Uh... 
they're they're a lot more stiff than he is. You know, he's mm. got a lot much thicker, like kind of Cockney accent. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of read it as he was a bit of a tokenistic character for them, of a slightly you know a bit of rough for the RA or something. Okay. And there's those scenes where he's like he's really playing up to that. He's like painting as performance, and he like does that big red splodge on his canvas and they're like what's he doing what he's a fool and then he comes and like wipes a bit off and you see it's like a boy in the sea that he's painting and they're all like completely like spellbound by it i don't know interesting you saw it that way though just those are the scenes that i would attach to my thesis unlikely or whatever (laughs) that's my problem not the films but it comes up again in um fictional context as well yeah, um, these Scorsese films, like After Hours, which is all you know, at the time when like the the gallery art world in New York, especially, was like really intersecting with like crazy capital. I'm talking like the Gagosian like galleries opening and stuff yeah. like that, and loads of these similar things or whatever, where the protagonist from After Hours is just like mixing with all these sort of like lower Manhattan types who are just like artists by habit, even though they don't like or they're like professional artists in inverted commas but they also just seem to just be like spending all their time at parties and none of their time like Mm. making any art Mm -hmm. his film life lessons um which is part of the new york stories project which uh coppola also made a film for and made a really good film for uh someone we're not allowed to mention on the podcast but i think is fucking sick and he made no (laughs) he made a film called oedipus rex where like this dude's having a crisis because his mum dies and then she's just like in the clouds like shouting at him all the time as he's like right. going back his life. Sounds like Mr. Larry and stuff. Life Lessons, which is part one of this New York Stories film, is fucking amazing, I think. It's like inescapably a part of this like Soho gallery world of like enormous lofts and like the sort of thing that like in the horse's mouth, like, Gully really has to strive to be able to access these, like, yeah, yeah. giant canvases, whereas there's just, just, like, Nick Nolte plays the, like, troubled, you know, genius artist in his 50s or whatever, and it's all about his, like, relationships with his, like, assistants or whatever. I know quite a few people who are, like, assistants for artists or whatever, and then they seem to do, like, a lot of the work on their behalf, right? I think this is, like, a, a normal dichotomy, especially with, like, installation and, like, sculpture work or whatever mm. but with the intersection of capital it really interests me but life lessons is a beautiful film even though it is about the relationships between like older male artists and like younger woman who's like trying to who is an artist but is not a professional artist or whatever and is trying to like become a professional artist but mm. ends up you know in the like subordinated and subjugated or whatever both romantically and yeah, yeah. professionally and then she walks out of his life at the end and then like a another person just walks in. It's a really sad story, um, mm. but it's a really, really awesome film. I'd mm. really recommend it to I need to watch it. A lot of people, yeah. Wish I'd watched it. I wish that uh, enough capital would intersect with me that I could afford an assistant now. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other fictional artists on screen that you guys would like to touch on before we move on? I think the only one that I can really think of is Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Celine Sciamma. It's an extremely popular film a couple of years ago. Great film as well. Yeah. Did you see it in cinema? I haven't seen it, no. <gasps> it is really good, yeah. Yeah, I need to. Um, and features some great paintings by the uh, contemporary artist Hélène Delmer. It's quite a similar 
premise to the draftsman's contract actually, where she's got to go, the character played by Noemi Merlon has to go to paint the portrait as opposed to the you know, 12 elevations of the <laughs> house of like, you know, really rich, like yeah. um, You're living right. on an island. You're right, it is actually quite a similar premise. And she's like the professional mm. brought in who then work and, you know, life matters are complicated or whatever. Mm. Um, I'm sure most of you listening would have seen this film. I think it's a really, I thought it was an amazing film, especially it's one of the last films I saw in the cinema. Very overwhelming and like a beautiful story. But I think for the art, the one thing for me is that it does have this moment that a lot of the films, or at least I imagined a lot of the films that we're going to be talking about would have. But maybe it's more just a cliche that you'd see in like Jogs and The Simpsons or whatever. Or you see someone like doing the last stroke and signing the painting and being like, mm. it's finished. And yeah. to me, wow. someone who's never painted a painting before, that's like, oh, I can't, that can't be... What it's like. No one ever started to pay it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no one. Oh God, like, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about finishing paintings? Do you think you have that cinematic um, moment in your inner life? It's never like a massive release or something. It's more like, I don't know. I think by the time I finish something, if I'm in the flow of making, I'm like so involved with thoughts about the next thing that I don't like stop to be like, voila, like, Louis Bennett with a massive flourish. <laughs> um, but I think I've probably witnessed people who are like that, you know. There's no, like... With a chisel, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sweating, like, Michelangelo style. Um, but also just maybe, like, a last kind of fictional artist to mention. It's, like, not a painting film, but another Greenway film, Belly of an Architect. Love it. Yeah. Incredible film. And again, like kind of a similar draftsman's contract, lady on fire kind of premise of like the artist who's commissioned, who like, you know, gets into some dodgy situation through mm. the commission, which is that that's interesting, like premise in itself, because it's like when you're being creative, but you're also in hock to someone mm. like financially, like that's really complicated. Mm. But Belly of an Architect, amazing film amazing like central performance by what's his name brian, brian dennehy brian dennehy yeah and also like really unusual Wells too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but also like super unusual greenway film like in how like um kind of emotionally like effusive he is like right i don't know greenway films that they're often so like bound by kind of an uh, uh, overarching structure that the performances are a little bit stilted by it or something, but he's just so huge, you know? Mm. But I yeah. really got... I really felt for him, even though, you know, he yeah. was like... I guess because he's a victim the whole film, or whatever. Yeah. And you don't see any of his work, even though he clearly cares a lot. A victim obsessed with a fascist architect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that film is mad, because I guess it is a film about architecture, and it must have had such a high budget compared to the draftsman's contract. They yeah. must have shut down all these iconic areas of Rome. Yeah. Um, you know, the Colosseum, the, all these baths and stuff, the fountain, and you've got these amazing scenes that are just ultimately kind of frivolous character dramas of, like, the dude being fucked over by these, like, conspiring, incestuous Italian literati. <laughs> yeah. And it's just in front of, you know, in a perfectly framed view of this classical architecture. There's one scene that takes place in front of that big 
fascist building. I can't remember what it's called, but you know, the one with all the arches like mm. inside it. But as a film about art, that is so savage. Savage. I guess you're right in saying like that film illuminates like the extent to which the creative process in here, like it's not even about I'm trying to make a building, it's about I'm trying to put on an exhibition of a you know, historical architect's work. But how those It's also pro- about IBS man, don't <laughs> get a twist. Yeah. <laughs> but about how those processes of like creativity are linked to like, you know, these networks mm. and contingencies. Yeah. Um, which is something we see again and again throughout these films like It's like it's but it's like it's kind of IBS film, but it's also like what is IBS? It's like his like obsession kind of manifest in his <laughs> body, like his pain becomes like a physical thing. And he's xeroxing all the stomachs of like oh, uh, God, yeah. Michelangelo's David or whatever, yeah, yeah. and then just like sticking it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, green That's, away, man. Yeah, no one can make a green film. away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not even done with him yet, but we'll get to him soon. Moving on from The Belly of an Architect, the one that's most relevant to me is The Agony and the Ecstasy, which was directed by Carol Reed, and I think it was in 1964. Um, I don't think either of you folks have seen it. Is that right? I haven't seen it now. Sam, you went to see Touch of Evil this month, and I don't believe anyone should have to see two Charlton Heston films in one <laughs> month. Um, but yeah, Charlton Heston plays uh, Michelangelo as he's been commissioned to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's a funny film, and Rex Harrison plays a sort of Mr. Burns-esque Pope Julius IV. <laughs> a lot of it is about the relationship between the artist and the patron, how the Pope wants to set himself up as not a Borgia or a Medici or whatever, and as some, someone who's doing something for God, not for their own personal glory. Um, it's very overacted, and it was a massive flop when it came out. Like People really didn't pick it up. It was one of the like last big like Hollywood studio epics. And they had to film it all at Chinachita because they couldn't film it in the actual Sistine Chapel, unlike Masterpiece from last year, The Two Popes by Fernando Morales, which I believe mm. is the only film shot in the Sistine Chapel. It's got um, a proper crazy, like, divine revelation sequence where, like, Michelangelo has to go up to the top of the mountain and God looks him in the eye or whatever, and he sees <laughs> the firmament, specific choice of words, because this is a flat earth podcast. Um, he has the revelation and then he goes down and he knows what he has to do but it's still miserable for him Um, I thought this film was fucking cool to be honest it's so lavish in the way that those like 60s big Hollywood studio films are there's so many you know candles being used to light the frame and stuff like that and there's a lot of interesting arguments with Raphael who's who's the kind of like um, secondary craftsman or whatever who ultimately finishes the work and it reminded me a lot of Belly of an Architect not just because of the milieu and like you're seeing comparable things being represented but it's also got this really funny thing where like um the pope thinks that michelangelo is capable of painting this even though he's been a sculptor his whole life yeah exactly i don't (laughs) this is a sculptor film dude uh it's about the painting (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's about the painting he's like but i'm a sculptor or whatever i'd actually recommend it it must have been an insane production to mount you see the scaffolding all the time and you see you know Charlton Heston doesn't really convey the inner turmoil of 
Michelangelo and certainly doesn't convey the fact that Michelangelo was a gay man. Something that a lot of the writing about the film has been about. Um, it also starts with like a sort of 10 minute essay on Michelangelo's work up to the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that's so mad. And they cut that out of some versions, right? <laughs> I think I read. Um, so it's like you get different runtimes for it because some just excise this extremely long prologue. It's one of the best parts of the film though, for me, I'd say. It's a lot more like um, Andre Rublev to me than I definitely expected it to be. I thought it was just going to be some boring film, but if we're talking about one of the great, you know, recognisable works of Western art, the film simultaneously didn't do it justice, but also like really, really tried hard to make a whole film out of it. And even if it didn't connect with people, I think it's a pretty cool document because you could never make that kind of film again where the production mm -hmm. costs probably cost more than the actual painting of the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> um, another film that's quite a lot about patronage as much about the act of painting and one that we've all seen is uh, Peter Greenaway's Night Watching from 2007 uh, has Martin Freeman, Bilbo Baggins as <laughs> Rembrandt von Rhein, Hank Stong for like the first five minutes, pretty classic Brechtian opening from Greenaway. As per his uh, later work, um, I don't know. I think this is one of my favourites of the ones we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I think like maybe Greenaway coming from actually being a painter before even making films, like he just sort of gets it somehow and has like a deep knowledge of what painting is. And so, like, his stagings of the painting in the Night Watch are so, like, are so well done. like his understanding of the lighting that was going on in that Rembrandt painting is like just amazing, you know? Yeah, one of the most striking things about this film is firstly, as you said, the sort of the way it interrogates the composition of the painting, but on a sort of filmic level, the way it's lit is just breathtaking, so much backlighting um, to sort of capture the glowing sort of halos of these characters, which is I guess this isn't really something we've spoken about so far, but the way that filmmakers respond to the aesthetics and style of painters that they're treating, mm. this really gets to the heart of Rembrandt's yeah, chiaroscuro totally. effect. And yeah, just a real technical achievement. It kind of nails that like sepia tone, but in like a good way, you know? So um, easy for that to be like sort of a bit naff. Yeah. Emotionally you know, manipulative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think Mr. Turner is on the verge of that, the kind of dodgy sepia <laughs> prestige kind of effect. Yeah. And probably like, it's still a good film. Of a, I'm not sure if you, you, you two have seen it, Final Portrait. I've seen it. You've seen yeah. it? Exactly. I really liked uh, it. It's about Giacometti. That's yeah, it's saying. about Giacometti and it's like a passion project of Stanley Tucci. He directs it. So many of these are sort of passion projects. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whether mm. it's like the star, the stars are often like the producers. Charlton yeah. Heston was the producer of, or like he brought yeah. the Agony and Ecstasy to the screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's the case with so many of these. Um, yeah, I sort of yeah. guess it has to be. And like the filmmakers will like see themselves in the artist or totally, you know, the, yeah, the, the yeah. performer will. For Greenaway to see himself as this artisan who's like beholden to commissions who uncut, I mean, what I really loved about Nightwatching was how it sort of brings this other element to films about artists that I don't really see, which is more in common with The Draftsman's Contract or The Da Vinci Code by Ron Howard, Dan Brown, etc., which is like uncovering this conspiracy that Greenaway makes you believe is like laid out before your very eyes on this like 
classic work mm. of art. He also made a film called Rembrandt's Jacques that I remember trying to watch with you, Sam. But hard work. Pretty hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. PowerPointy. The thing is, this is the uh, <laughs> TED Talky. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a gallery piece, whereas Night Watching is a, a narrative film. Yeah. That is sort of rectangular points. This has just reminded me. I, this is a film I have to bring up because it's one of the most breathtaking, astonishing film achievements that I can think of, and that's Lev Miefsky's, um The Mill and the Cross, which is all yeah. about Bruegel's The Procession to Calvary, um, and it, it uses, it has a crazy technique with this like sort of layered CGI, it starts with, I don't know how long it is, five minutes of just like the painting in all its multiplicities, um, but they're like animated characters have been sort of um, superimposed into I guess the, the painted backdrop and that film is all about you know unpacking the meaning within it it's different to so many of these that you've already referred to like sort of cradle to the grave biopics as a trope you know night watching which we'll carry on talking about in a minute maybe um, is about a specific thing so it's not like a biography um, but this is really about unpacking the meaning behind and sort of allegory uh, behind his painting um, yeah and just a remarkable film as Rutger Hauer from yeah. Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> Tears in the Rain. Yeah. Um, and probably like that's maybe like the peak achievement of like the filmmaker go like just pushing so far the thing of like how can I make a film that feels like this artist's work? Sure. Which like so many of these films try to do. And some of them are like so far from that. <laughs> yeah. Like Lust for Life, like there's none of like Van Gogh really in there, you know. Sure. Um, Lech Majeski was a painter himself as well. Oh, uh, really? And I mean, I've never felt more inside a painting really than watching this film. It's so amazing. We've talked about it on this podcast before, like very, very early on, where Sam actually recommended both The Mill and the Cross and Night Watching as a double bill. And I watched both these films this week. They're both amazing. The Mill and the Cross. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> was yeah finally two years two years later the mill and the cross i've never seen anything like it apparently it was you know it was funded you know and mm. bought by loads of distributors it was seen yeah, across the like world yeah it's like a real sort of international co-production yeah. polish dutch i don't know like five nation states we got um, we got basil yeah. exposition in there man we oh yeah michael york yeah. from curb season four yeah. or whatever it yeah. is <laughs> um uh, like a lot of these also uh this is an adaptation of like a sort of art historical book like a lot of them are based on like biographies or like source other sorts of source material this is based on like an art historical thesis and you can really feel it in the way it like walks you through the painting and as i said there's nothing quite like that that i've seen yeah, it reminded me of like a, a picture from where a ethical film or something like that for the way the camera is used and how held back and restrained it is for most of the time passive it is Mm. which really does make you feel like you're looking at a painting or being inside the painting. The ending of this film is fucking crazy because you spend an hour and a half with all these different characters, with a few of the 150 characters that occupy this Bruegel painting. You know, it's like, if you like Bruegel, if you're not familiar with Bruegel, you might like the band Fleet Foxes or whatever. He did their <laughs> album cover. There's a film by... <laughs> he did their album cover. Um, I can't believe they got that on their first record. Sub pop, their budgets must be going fucking. I hope Bruegel saw some royalties for that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a film by Jacques Feder called uh, La Caire Messe Week, which is sort of a 30s sort of poetic realism film. 
that recreates a lot of scenes from Bruegel as just like literal frames, but it's just like a frivolous French farce or whatever. But this film it is dealing with some really serious shit, you know, it's dealing with like Spanish imperialism yeah. and the 16th God, they're so centuries. fucking scary in this film, man, when they pull up in the red and the Virgin Mary and the interrogating the Virgin Birth, all in this like insane landscape. And also sort of foregrounding the um, relationship between the artist and the patron, like that's the central aspect of the yeah. film as well. Mm. The ending of this film, right, you spend an hour and a half inside this painting and then you just get to finally look at the painting for what it is at the end of this film and it's a really, really slow zoom out of the room in Vienna where this painting is exhibited and you clock that the painting is really, really small, which is, I guess, a joke or whatever, or <laughs> just a comment or whatever, but it made me feel really weird at the end of this film. Yeah, I mean, it's a moment of, like, heavy irony, <laughs> I guess, after really magnifying and buying so much significance on, like, you know, details that are millimetres in, in height, in practice. It reminded me of the ending of Andre Rublev, which is a film I won't spend too much time talking about this evening, but um, I don't know if you've seen it, Louis. Sadly, never seen it. It's oh. a massive omission. That film is about the sort of spiritual journey that this guy, Andre Rublev, like the most famous Russian national icon painter or whatever. It was like, they put out the budget for it because it was like going to be a hagiography of like the greatest Russian painter. There's two characters who look very similar in the film and most of the first half is like gaslighting the audience into thinking one guy is Andrei Rublev but it's actually this other guy. But there's also another <laughs> scene where um, he's like looking at these like sort of pagans yes. right and then the women um, sort of he's like watching a woman and it sort of shifts between like five actresses or something in, in you know a couple of minutes mm. um yeah it's but it's really not a film about painting is it I'm no sure but there's about the struggle rather than there's the two painting. like really long discussions about painting but they're both with uh, theophanes the greek who's dead or radiant <laughs> like his ghost or whatever this film is fucking amazing guys like yeah louis the, this is the the essential the missing piece you know yeah, yeah. i'd still say it's better than stalker or whatever i'd still say it's probably number one Tarkovsky to me for a time but I mean this dude goes on this whole thing he makes a vow of silence and then his whole like process of like becoming an artist is shown through this kid who doesn't know how to make bells and he's lying to all the people who work in the field like oh yeah I know how to make a bell I know how to make a bell and they mount this whole fucking crazy like bell making thing and then it rings in the end and it's like a miracle right there's also like kind of like a agony and ecstasy style like commission sequence where he's got to paint this cathedral and the the duke or whatever is coming in and being like, oh, you haven't painted anything yet, this is a disgrace. And the whole church gets ransacked anyway, so it doesn't matter. But you don't see any paintings up close until this, like, unbelievable coda to the film. It's all in black and white, and then suddenly you're hearing, like, the soundtrack from the film, like, played again, like, in really epic versions as the camera is panning across, like, details of the artwork. And it's, like... I guess, like, Russian icon painting has a specific sort of theology to it or whatever, where it's supposed to, like, communicate the inner soul of, like, the saints and, like, Christ himself, like, through grace within the painting or whatever. But, I mean, there's really nothing more powerful than, like, this bit in this film of all the films we're going to be talking about in terms of, like, just paying respect and showing the art for what it really is or whatever. It's an awesome sequence. 
Um, that just reminds me of like a classic scene in Bergman's The Seventh Seal, the one where they go to the church and the guy is like painting the mural of the dance of death with Memento Mori, and there's just like two minutes of dialogue about what it means to be a painter and like communicate like what can you communicate like visually like in that time like mm. you know all art was basically didactic and mm -hmm. all art that survives to us and has you know yeah yeah it's like related to these sort of like religious functions yeah it's yeah. not really much sort of secular stuff and i guess um <laughs> that we're going to be looking at i guess all the 19th century stuff is like the complete antithesis of that yeah where um you know it's way more about like the artist is like the secular like individual um and it may relate to their like society and their like historical experience but like it's not like rooted in like godliness or, or mm. those sorts of religious imperatives mm. I, I guess we should bring in a couple more uh rembrandt films really quickly okay. um do you want to talk about the Charles Lawton one, the Alexander Corder one shot in Denham down the road for me? Ah, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the sets were amazing, mm. I will say. And the floors, pff, worth watching just for the floors and, you know, the rural snow-capped windmills and stuff like that. Great. The Rembrandt film was sort of the genesis, as it's conceived in both this John A. Walker book and in that thesis by... David Bowie. That's a really good uh, the artist biopic. It's like a sort of historical analysis of yeah, yeah. And both of those start with this Rembrandt film, which had a huge budget and nineteen thirty six. Nineteen thirty six. Yeah, and it was uh, planned to be the first of several. Um, it's everything that the Peter Greenaway film isn't. You see one shot of the Night Watch where he signs it, and I got it's, he played by Charles Lawton, right? I don't like Charles Dalton, I never really liked him. And he doesn't make any effort with trying to make his signatures look like Rembrandt's signatures either. But whereas we spent two and a half hours with Greenaway, like with all these conspiracies unraveling the fucking eyes wide shut, dark heart within the painting or whatever, this is just like, ah, it's finished, it's massive, I'm signing it. And then everyone's like, they, he made me look like a clown or whatever. You see three paintings <laughs> in the Rembrandt film and you do see a lot of um, Rembrandt like looking at the camera and like holding a frame diagonally, which is kind of cool, I guess. Must have been like... Dutch angle. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, Charles Lawton has this like Boris Johnson energy that I just can't spend any time with. Unlike night watching, where you really get the feel that like, Martin Freeman's Rembrandt is like provincial and an outsider to like these sort of like municipal like elites. Definitely. He's referred to as a little provincial numerous times in, in the film. Right. And I just don't buy that from Charles Lawton because he's talking like they're all going to a, a boar hunt on the weekend with all these people together anyway. We can't really speak to the characterization of Nazi Germany's 1942 Rembrandt directed by Hans Steinhoff. Feels good. It's like two hours, 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> so, um, one other Rembrandt film that I just want to give a quick shout out to is called Rembrandt Beckett 1669 from 1977. And this is a Dutch one. And it's like an art film, lots of like sort of recreations of the paintings being made mm. um it's on youtube there's not much dialogue you can watch it with english subtitles if you want to it's, it's a strange film like very non-narrative like mm. dreamlike um and dreamlike is like one of the perfect qualities for like these artist biopics as far as yeah, yeah. Mm. as far away as narrative as you can get the better um <laughs> 
Two things I will say for this Charles Lawton uh, Rembrandt film. To you, who mm. is a, um, it's got your man Roger Livesey, twenty-nine-year-old, uh. playing like an old haggard beggar who just meets meets on a bridge in Amsterdam, and he paints him as King Saul or whatever. Okay, this is top of my list. Yeah, <laughs> Roger Livesey is my boy. I know where I'm going. <laughs> Otherwise, it's it's one of the most like walk hardy like monoform mm. biopics I could think of or whatever where it does feel like it could so easily be a parody of like films about artists or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or at least I went into this podcast thinking a lot of these films could be like that. They come out surprising you with how actually they're pretty good a lot of the time, right? I think it's because what Sam said about how they're usually passion projects and they're usually genuine. Yeah. And also probably they're not expected to make a lot of money <laughs> so they can kind of <laughs> do what they want a bit more. Yeah, I think they learned that lesson pretty quickly after... Agony of the SC, Lost for Life, and Rembrandt were all yeah, massive yeah. flops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, artist biopics have proliferated more in, tw- in the late 20th and 21st century. I feel like there is like a real cottage industry around it, especially with like sort of Netflix style heritage film. Yeah, but, yeah. But um, yeah, it's true that. Everyone's his- favourite genre. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what gets the clicks, or <laughs> like it is trash, but people, you know, it's ubiquitous. Maybe at this point I want to give a shout out to a couple of, I mean, we've talked about biopics and also fictional artists, but there's like an interesting midpoint where the two kind of blend and two films, I think, that kind of exemplify that are Victor Arise's film A Quince Tree Sun um, and A Bigger Splash, the sort of documentary about David Hockney Mm. in the early 70s. Maybe it was 70. Sure. But um, Quince Tree Sun is, like, one of the best films about painting for me, like... Who's that about? I think he's called Antonio Garcia Lopez. And the entire thing is basically about him in his garden making one painting of a Quince Tree, but over a really long period, over a season. And he's incredibly meticulous, um, measuring out the painting with sort of like tiny little measurements of like exactly where does this quince sit and where does this leaf go. So the super meticulous kind of draftsman's contracts way of making art. But then it's kind of a futile task because like the quinces are growing and changing colour and the leaves are falling off faster mm-hmm. than he can get them in place. And it's all, you know, it's also about his like life. I think he's in Madrid and it's like People are coming, going, talking about the painting, watching it progress. But it's, you know, this, like, beautiful meditation on, like, the ultimate failure of painting. Like, you know, before you've even started to try and depict something, you've failed because it's not the thing. It's, like, it's a flat image, you know. And it's, like, the only film, really, that we're talking about that speaks to that. I need to see it. I love Spirit of the Beehive and Elsa, but... Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, it's it's kind of a documentary, but it feels weird to call it that because it's so... You know, it's directed by someone who made feature films and it has that uh, feeling to it. Mm. And then A Bigger Splash is kind of similar in that you know, it's you see Hockney painting for real and you see real conversations with his gallerist and stuff kind of pressuring him to work faster. But it's also like his like personal relationships are kind of they play out in a way that isn't completely 
natural, you know. It's there's like an artificial element to it, right. which is you know that's like a super interesting like crossroads, mm. but it's also an amazing film, and also like another kind of fifteen years after the horse's mouth, you're seeing London in another state where like Hockney's driving around what looks like Kensington or something, and it's like deserted, you know. I love this like accidental historical texture that you get yeah, out of yeah. these films that at the time were meant to represent like the contemporary, contemporary yeah. but ultimately are like a document of like a liminal experience. Yeah. A bigger flash is fascinating to me. I haven't seen it, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> the exhibition history is something else. Um, they were going to open the London Film Festival with it. But it got picketed by like Mary Whitehouse and all these sorts of people, the Daily Mail, because of how, I guess it's almost like doxing or whatever. Um, I've got this quote from Hockney here where he said, in the end, he emphasised things, emphasising the gayness was a bit much. Sex doesn't dominate my life at all, really. I think painting does. It's just a small part. I suppose it's the publicity. People are interested in it because of that, really. See the homosexuality, which I thought is just an accepted part of people's lives. But it was groundbreaking as a queer film or whatever. It was yeah. It was going to open the London Film Festival, they said, and people were scandalised by it, even though Hockney felt already uncomfortable with the degree of artifice that went into making a documentary mm. film about a painter and in these sort of restaged scenes of his life that I think you compared off mic to Made in Chelsea or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also this level of infamousness or whatever that was brought to the film yeah, by yeah. it being a sort of culture war issue in the 70s even though that's the element that like Hockney thought least about yeah, yeah. Um, there was a big public battle it ended up closing the London Film Festival and being a massive hit because no one had seen anything like it either for the queer content on a cinema screen and also this like new approach to portraying a painter in sort of documentary yeah, yeah. semi-realism I really like the Henry George Clouseau film about Picasso, which I've entirely forgot about, even though it made a huge impression on me when I saw it about 15 years ago in the cinema, which is kind of like a game of Pictionary. So, like, the canvas that Picasso is drawing on or painting on is the film strip or whatever, and it feels like an animation film, and he's just, like, building it up bit oh, by I bit. I have seen that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called The Mystery of Picasso, and I guess it's from the late 50s. It was after, like, he made The Wages of Fear and Diabolique and stuff like that, but... Mm. Even when that came out, it was still quite like a fringe topic or whatever. It wouldn't yeah. get like cinema exhibition, but it still gets screened every few years now. Yeah, yeah. It's a really fun film. Yeah. That, The Mystery of Picasso. Yeah, yeah. I don't take Picasso insanely seriously anyway, but maybe that's because of this film and seeing it as like a laugh and all these anecdotes about him just like doing doodles and them selling for millions or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's such a part of the myth, but yeah. also the truth of Picasso. Yeah, yeah, and they probably couldn't make a film about Picasso because he had so many different periods and so many different. It's weird they've not tried more. Well, there's one with um, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, really? Oh, surviving Picasso. Yeah, I, I didn't. But that's in the subgenre that we got to talk about later, which is just like old man and young woman like yeah. romance films, <laughs> or whatever, which is such a big part of this subgenre of artist mm. films. Mm. Um, I Doesn't just apply want... to you, Louis, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go back to, I guess, that central tension in The Biggest Splash, just in terms of what you're talking about, about its reception. Mm. And that's such a standard aspect of these films, that sort of tension between private life of the artist and their artwork and the, their, the interrelation of the two things. 
In terms of queer cinema, I guess it might be worth talking about Caravaggio at this point, another big British film. Mm-hmm. I watched this very recently. Um, and like this sort of iconographically is a huge film, the sort of British art house imaginary, the image of, um, what's the guy's name? Dexter Fletcher. Dexter Fletcher as young Caravaggio was like, you know, he looks like Mick Jagger. He looks exactly like Mick Jagger. Yeah, it's real, like sort of BFI, like sort of you know artwork vibes. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is a controversial film. I, I I didn't respond especially well to it, even though it includes many aspects that I think are quite interesting on a formal level. Like the anachronism could be construed as playful, but it's a bit annoying. I when there's I, like a TV in the background of like him or like a broken TV in the background. Um, yeah, I. I just, I know what you mean about struggling with it. I've not seen Caravaggio, but like I've seen like other Derek Jarman films, and I kind of feel similarly like they formally they're super interesting and they're doing some kind of maybe some kind of post Greenaway experimentation with mm. the form, but they kind of leave you cold. And just in terms of that Greenaway comparison, Greenaway we didn't even talk about this in relation to any of the. Once we spoke about Draken's contract, Belly of an Architect, Night Watching, the dialogue is impeccable. Yeah. Um, and it, it's like a. And the editing. Yeah, and it's just extremely sophisticated. Whereas yeah. this. Um, it's like a know, tight drum, like every a, word. Some, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that is, that is exactly it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I. I also didn't really like how the paintings were represented in this film, which is. You know, always sort of an issue of these films, like especially in terms of like rights, where I don't think there's mm. an issue here, but sometimes they, people don't get the rights to yeah. depict works in Julian Schnabel's um, Basquiat film, in um, Love Is a Devil, yeah, about Francis Bacon. Yeah. Whereas here, I don't know, I just didn't feel like the the canvases we saw sort of conveyed the majesty of Caravaggio's skill, and it was, yeah, again, like maybe more salacious than interrogative yeah, yeah. I, I was so prepared to see Caravaggio as a essential breakthrough British film and I rate Derek Jarman as well I rate his writing and I rate Blue and I rate the Pet Shop Boys I just want to say I love Derek Jarman yeah 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 yeah. You know. before conceptually before anything else <laughs> just as a dude and his ideas he was brilliant but like his films just don't don't do it for me this one especially I've never been so disappointed by it I, classic movie before almost. Yeah. Maybe because I'm not maybe because I'm a heterosexual man the subliminal impetus behind making like a queer film about a uh, you know, one of the greatest painters of all time. Yeah. Is uh maybe I underrated that or I didn't feel it. Yeah. But I thought the film was shy. The Bowie thesis that you've already referenced, mm. which is Really instructive and very well done. It refers to the fact that Jarman's like sort of AIDS discourses in the public eye like really shaped the reception of the film. Because just um, before and, he made the film, right? and made people read into the film as like a queer text more than it necessarily is. Mm. But it also shows Caravaggio having sex with men. Yeah, sure. So I don't think it's like a willful overreading which contrasts with this interestingly with this uh, film about Artemisia Gentileschi who is a very popular renaissance artist in modern conception and she just had a huge exhibition at the National Gallery yeah these these things are always linked 
in the public imaginary to sort of gallery retrospectives, aren't they? Sure. You know, um, night watching was linked to some Rembrandt quadricentenary. Yeah, and Greenaway wanted to make a, <laughs> a film about Hieronymus Bosch, but I guess he didn't get it complete in time for the cinquecentenary of and, Hieronymus yeah. Bosch, and as a result, the funding all disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. This Artemisia film is interesting because, I mean, it's one of the few woman painters that we're going to be talking about today. The film about her is very interesting because it was so heavily picketed and disagreed with by second wave feminists at the time, mm. right? Gloria Steinem and people mm. like this. Yeah, I read this really interesting pamphlet, which, yeah, as you alluded to, was designed for distribution outside cinemas and stuff. Yeah. Um, like ob- Father ob- Ted. Objecting to its uh, sort of historical yeah. reading of, mm. of her. So when I went to the exhibition of her work at the National Gallery last year, you had like five Judith beheading hollow furnaces like next to each other and it was about like showing how she dealt with her trauma over the course of her like life and career and she was a sort of semi-contemporary of Caravaggio or whatever mm. but certainly influenced by like in that sort of milieu but from what I understand this Artemisia film tries to argue that like her rape was like a setup and like some sort of conspiracy and she was actually very in love with the man who raped her and like all of like her paintings of Judith Burding Holofernes were like to try to like plead the case that like I don't even have the language to, yeah, to argue this way. Like, it's, it's so like, outrageous, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess at this point it's worth saying that women painters in a sort of biopic have been marginalised, sure. uh, as in like sort of conventional written historiography, um, which is sort of privileged, like sort of great men model of history and then once it incorporates women as subjects that sort of is comes with its own representational issues mm. i watched the um the mexican frida mm. carlo film frida still life is what it's called from 1983 by paul Dudley, and that's actually i think a film that sort of avoids some of the pitfalls of hollywood women's biography sort of stuff mm. um by you know it was actually a pretty remarkable film, formally, with lots of sort of panning shots of like these like tableaus, very little dialogue, and just about like these like sort of key scenes in her life and how they relate to her painting. You see a lot of her paintings, and yeah, I'd actually really recommend that film. And mm. um, the American Frida Kahlo film is meant to be slightly more problematic, I guess, just by dint of being like exactly that, oh, a Hollywood film. Yeah, I really wouldn't recommend it, folks. I, I took the bullet and watched it for this week. Although I was up for it, I really like Frida Kahlo's paintings. And I love Leon Trotsky. And um, I guess my main objection to that film was the way that it eschewed all Marxism and all like communism on Frida Kahlo's part in favour of just like making this about like salacious love affairs or whatever. Whereas actually Frida Kahlo was like a very active communist. What about the Mexican one? Um, she is shown as an active participant mm. in, you know, revolutionary causes. Yeah. Um, she's shown attending political protests, um, being pushed in her wheelchair because it really foregrounds mm. her physical disability and relates that to her experience yeah, as an yeah. artist. And she's shown with Leon Trotsky. Um, it deploys contemporary Mexican slogans, uh, I guess like Soviet slogans, land and liberty stuff like that um and at the beginning she's shown it starts with her funeral and then most of the film sort of framed with her like sort of 
deathbed sort of reveries. So that gives yeah. her sort of dreamlike quality. But her funeral, she's like draped with like a big hammer and sickle bag. The politics are like a central aspect of it. Definitely not the case for this Julie Taymor 2002 film about Frieda, mm. sadly. I was just going to loop back a bit to like women painters are sidelined by the genre as a whole in the, mm. you know, they're not represented enough, there's not enough films about them, but also women within these films we're talking about are kind of sidelined and objectified. Like one of the kind of distasteful things about Mr. Turner was like his relationships with the women in that film. Yeah. Like but it's like a rape scene, isn't it? Or sort of. It is sort. It's. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it that, but he, yeah. he's like having these very bleak sexual encounters with the maid, and you don't get any sense that Michael's commenting on it. Really, it's yeah. like it's a depiction of something very bleak and without consequence for Turner. You know, this is person who is in his service and who he's exploiting in this other way, and at the very end of that film is just is like a shot of that maid kind of just after Turner's passed away. She's like in his London home, just kind of, you know, a lot older, disheveled, mm. walking through the house. And then the film ends and you could kind of like, I don't know, like we need something more about her, you know, like. I thought she was really, really well played by Leslie Mandel. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the actor. Might be. I would be charitable to Mike Lee in this situation. Far be it for me to prescribe these sorts of things, but I think even to make a sort of hagiographical film about a heritage artist and portray this kind of stuff that is so nasty yeah. or like just jarring, yeah, is already so much further than ninety percent of filmmakers That's that we're true. talking about That's today true. would go. And like that is one of my lasting memories of watching Mr. Turner as well. Yeah, yeah. Is these two or three like really nasty sequences yeah, well. yeah and they really do color your way that you view i don't really look at turner the same way even though i never read a book about him or whatever yeah, yeah. i think what he did in painting is unbelievable but i think when you walk away from mr turner both his you know experiments with light and his personal relationships actually are kind of equally weighted and given as much screen time mm. in that film which i wouldn't say about any other film i've seen today. yeah yeah got to pick up on something you just said these artist films, like, this is one of the central ways that we sort of learn about and form ideas about these historical figures. Mm. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you were saying before that, like, every release of a major Van Gogh film has kind of coincided with the growing of his myth and, like, the growing of his, like, ongoing popularity. Like, the, the, the kind of, particularly with Van Gogh, the, like, screen versions of him seem to like be really important to like a public perception of like who the artist was absolutely and if, if i may take that up i think we see two very different interpretations like historiographical interpretations of his biography on screen and they center around like in, in at eternity's gate probably the most recent biopic 2018 by julian schnabel we see it promulgates this idea that he didn't commit suicide, right? That he was mm. shot by some kids yeah. accidentally and he sort of covers for it. Whereas other ones sort of participate in... The, the downward the, spiral. The yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, the myth of like the sort of tragic artist yeah. that... Um, it's so cool about... Cool is such a irresponsible word or whatever. But I really appreciate <laughs> it about 
at Eternity's Gate. And I don't really rate Julian Snobble as a filmmaker. Like I thought Basquiat was ass. I don't know if we talked about that on mic or not, but and he's he was literally there, and he made a film that felt sort of fake. It's weird though. It's like I'm I'm very interested by Schnabel. I think he's sort of you know he was right there with Basquiat at the intersection of capital and New York art in the eighties, and like he really became a sort of bloated figure of that scene. Mm. Like the money really got to him in some way. Sure, and like he's a character in one of those Scorsese films. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's like a sort of cartoonish, and I think Basquiat as a film is very cartoonish and doesn't move far away from the stereotypes, you know? Mm. Um, but then like Eternity's Gate is like a total reversal of that in that it does feel like some fresh take and it also feels like a really honest portrayal of painting, you know? I think there are two reasons why I love At Eternity, at least two reasons. Firstly, this sort of revisionism, the way it brings this new sort of interpretation of his biography to a popular audience I think is really interesting but the way it represents or the way the sort of gaze of the camera is through Van Gogh's like sort of ecstatic yeah, sort of yeah. manic depressive gaze I don't know I think it's like a real and it's always like really up close yeah he uses a lot of like sort of lens grease yeah, and yeah. stuff like that for these sort of roomy-eyed, like, yeah, oh, yeah, he's, yeah. like, weeping because everything's so wonderful. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's actually a, a really... It's amazing. A really brilliant one. And also, I think of any of these films, the, like, biopic subgenre of these films, like, At Eternity's Gate does the best job of making you feel like you're watching the artist actually paint. Like, that could be sure. Van Gogh making a painting, you know? when you're watching the paintings be made. The irony of that is that Willem Dafoe, twice that age of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Which is a strange casting decision and sort of, again, plays a role in, like, how we conceptualise the Van Gogh myth. I mean, he's so him. good, though, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I mean, he's brilliant. <laughs> also, the sort of panic attack scenes yeah. are, like, amazing, I think, in that film. Like, I watched that and I was like fucking hell this is like the closest on-screen thing to like actually having a panic attack that i've ever seen again it's just an achievement of sort of perspectival filmmaking yeah. sort of subjective filmmaking yeah yeah where the sort of experience of painting and his general experience his psychological state is actualized through the image yeah yeah it was the most i mean i've only seen two van gogh films for this podcast Van Gogh films for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Lust for Life, which was grotesquerie and uh, fetishization, it, like the definition of it, or whatever. Yeah. In terms of like reifying like inner personal experiences and totally not applying any sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. To that and just making I mean, him seem like Frankenstein. Or something. The moment when like the villager outside his house, yeah. like all shouting at him, and he just screams like, "Leave me!" <laughs> like I, I was like almost crying with laughter at that it was so insane but that is as insincere as the moment when he's meeting fucking Surah and he's like my palate is methodically prepared in the order <laughs> of the spectrum like some Wikipedia yeah, yeah. shit but that whole film was just insincere and an excuse for Kurt Douglas to do his shit yeah and 
didn't hold up to 21st century standards or whatever. But yeah. At Eternity's Gate was really empathetic, you know. And the conversation, the Mads Mikkelsen character in that film is so interesting, and like they actually have uh, a conversation. Yeah, yeah. No one's monologuing at anyone, mm. which was rare and beautiful, and I really appreciated it. Schneebel. Schneebel pulled it out of the bag. While we're talking about what do you call him? Van Hooch. Van Hooch. Van Van Hoff. Van Gogh. There are two films from the early 90s, Robert Altman's Vincent and Teo and Maurice Piala, who's Under the Son of Satan, was our first film club. Amazing film. Here's Van Gogh. They're quite different films. Uh, as its name suggests, Vincent and Teo sort of prioritises looking at both of them. And it's actually a, a really interesting film. Tim Roth plays uh, Van Gogh has a crazy industrial score. It's sort of, <laughs> it is a bit shouty at times, but it really foregrounds that tension between the artist and yeah, capital demand, mm. like valuation of artworks, um, all this stuff. Um, it's got that first scene. Oh yeah, yeah. The first scene is crazy where it's just, it starts with the Christie's auction, I guess in the late eighties of one of the Sunflower's paintings. And it's just like going up by increments of like 500,000. And then it cuts to like Tim Roth, like looking like really ratchet in bed, like, <laughs> um, like they, he, they did him up really well. I think um, Altman's son did the production design for it. The Piala film is quite different in that it's, both films sort of focus on this sort of mythological period almost. Um, the Piala film though is like extremely unromantic and sort of deconstructs it like, really looks at his relationships and his like sort of place in the world as like sort of every man, um, his relationship with Dr. Gachet, um, his homeopathic doctor and a subject to some of his paintings and um, the guy's daughter, Piala invents a love affair with the daughter as a sort of bit of source basically. It's great. Yeah. The, <laughs> but yeah, a lot more prosaic and I think the Altman one, if we're thinking about how the style of the film replicates the sort of psychology of the painter that does it a bit more. Did the Piala one have those crazy cuts that the Under the Sun of Satan had? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sort of starts scenes in medias res, like we see, um, we don't see him shoot himself, but we see like the immediate aftermath of it. But there are some other great smash cuts where there's a scene where Marguerite, Dr. Gachet's daughter is like talking to the housekeeper and actually she delivers a really interesting bit of dialogue about how her partner when she was a kid like died in the commune and stuff like that. Mm. Really interesting sort of historical texture. And then she's like, oh, I hope that Mr. Van Gogh is a respectable man or something like that. And then it's like smash cut to him like holding a pistol against his forehead in extreme close up. <laughs> um, all this sort of stuff is brilliant. But yeah, a, a pair of interesting films. Suffice to say at this point though, Van Gogh has been like, you know, the preeminent like sort of artist yeah. for screen adaptation. Just so. also there is that film from like a couple of years ago where like every frame was an actual oil painting. Mm. Oh yeah, of course. Loving not, Vincent. Yeah, I've not seen it, but like... It's no, got like 10 years it. to make or something. Oh. Yeah. I've heard like the, you know, visually 
amazing, but like narrative leaves like a lot to be desired. Mm. Looked yeah. pretty normal to me. Yeah, it didn't look normal, but it seemed pretty normal. Yeah, to yeah. Done so far, the story yeah. itself. Yeah. Maybe we can move on to two films now that look at Eastern European artists that maybe aren't really part of our sort of conception of European artists. We've oh, looked Western at like canon. some, yeah, we've looked like you know real like sort of old masters and the ones that like form a central part of the sort of public imaginary of like the artists. A lot of that shaped through these very films. But I want to really quickly talk about this Hungarian one, Chantvari. I'm not going to dwell on it for too long, but it's interesting in that it juxtaposes these sort of vignettes from the artist's life and like these sort of dream sequences almost sort of replicating the inspiration for his work while also exploring what it means to depict an artist as an actor on screen so it has this sort of two-pronged approach to its subject mm. and in terms of evoking the sort of psychological inspiration and yeah the sort of like dream imagery is one of the best ones I've seen. That sounds a bit like um, Raul Ruiz's film about Klimt starring uh, John Malkovich, which I don't think I'd find room to talk about on this podcast because it was so uninteresting. But that is the same thing where it's like, I mean, it's a Raul Ruiz film, so like I was surprised by how well I could understand the story compared to other ones I've seen. And compared to the Hypothesis of the Stolen Painting, which is an amazing film about making mm. paintings and has that sort of Greenway night watching, like tricks with the light and like moving the models around. Millen Lacrosse vibes, for yeah. sure. But the Klimt film was ass, like really the worst film I've seen for this podcast. I wouldn't recommend it at all. Piers Marnie, however. Yeah, that's the other one I wanted to bring in in terms of just bringing an artist's aesthetic to the screen. This is a biopic of the Georgian painter Niccolo. Kurosmani, like many of these sort of impressionist painters born in like the sort of mid-19th century, um, directed by Georgi Shengalaya, a Georgian filmmaker. And the guy that plays Kurosmani is, I think you told me he's like, he was like the world expert of Kurosmani's like artwork. That's right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which he is, was, was the role he was born to play. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Um, <laughs> the aesthetic of this film, though, I think is certainly the most noticeable aspect of it, even though it is like a narrative biopic that sort of traces his, like, you know, potential ascendancy into the art world, his flirtation with the sort of Georgian Royal Academy, mm. and then his sort of fading into obscurity until he was revitalised through pop culture. Um, this film was amazing, the, the man. Every, was crazy, yeah. Every shot I screenshotted. <laughs> I thought it was fucking incredible and this dude's paintings are so straightforward I guess he's considered sort of primitivist mm. or whatever the paintings are a bit like Tony Hancock's paintings in The Rebel where they're so simplistic but I think it's almost about the hanging in this film where like the first scene or like one of the first scenes you see him like painting two cows on either side of the bar that him and his brother run where they make cheese in and stuff like that and everyone's like why are you painting this really simple cow on the front of our bar and he says several times that, oh, I've just been told to paint, like, I've got to paint, I don't have a choice, or whatever. And he's a starving artist, and you see his... It's got the opposite of, like, the walk-hard structure that you find in a lot of these films, where he's actually quite, like, people understand where he's coming from, and they're, like, supporting him, even if they don't understand his artistic framework. But he's penniless and unrewarded in his life, and you see his life get worse and worse. But the film, honestly, is just gorgeous. I know um, Parajanov, the other great... Georgian filmmaker also made a film inspired by Piers Marnie and this film felt quite a lot like The Colour of Pomegranates in terms of 
you see characters twirling and it's more about the compositions than it is about the dialogue or absolutely the relationship yeah but, we just we just watched 15 minutes of this film before we started recording and it did look like gorgeous like compositions were like really incredible mm. but maybe not bearing like a very close relationship to his work it felt like you know there's like a, a filmmaking style very separate from his work that was like imposed on top as well you know definitely the film looked a lot more like um that shark and the painter film which you recommended to me a couple of years ago or whatever mm. it was one of those bbc like play for today omnibus yeah, horror yeah. stories or whatever I love that shit. I guess just in terms of symmetrical framing, Shalk and the Painter, the compositions often look like Vermeer paintings yeah. where you get this sort of depth of staging through doorways and you see action play out in levels like that. I sort of yeah. disagree to a certain extent about what you said about Piraswani's aesthetic. Because I feel like it does sort of chime with what his style. But It chimes with it, but I think that... It's not like a Mill the Cross case of like a filmmaker, you know, seeing this painter's work and thinking, how can I translate that into film? Mm. It's mm. like it fits and gels really well, but like it's not just a filmic version of like a painterly style, you know. I think the Shalk and the Painter is instructive as a comparison for this because it like you look at this guy Shalkin's paintings and they're like sicker than any camera could ever capture or whatever they got it's so that, much detail to the lighting stanley kubrick nasa camera yeah a hundred percent um i'm sorry to any fans of girl with a pearl earring from 2003 <coughs> starring scarlett johansson about vermeer i haven't seen it anyone seen it no um i tried to avoid it to be honest although i did watch the pollock ed harris film which was amazing and mm. genuine and sincere and i rated it but the shark and the painter film took these Vermeer like lighting setups and a lot of shots did look quite a lot like the shots from Piers Marni, but they were trying to express totally different things. The Shark and the Painter is like, my life's a movie, it's a scary movie or whatever. <laughs> mm. It's adapted from like, Sheridan Le Fanu who wrote like a lot of 19th century like vampire novels and he wrote what Vampire by Traher is based off or whatever. Oh no shit. Yeah, but that film is loaded with artistic sensibility and sincerity. And just paying the attention to the lighting setups that the painters would, would do themselves or whatever. Whereas Piers Marnie was so bare, so stripped back, mm. but also still so fucking beautiful, yeah. honestly. Of it's all so the so films that we talked about today, like that was the one where everything I was looking at, I was like, whoa. <laughs> I think it's that sort of flatness of the image in it as well um, that sort of corresponds with his um, pictorial style. I think it's time to wrap up, probably. With one final film that's, you know, a real masterpiece of the genre. Unless you've got anything else, Louis, that you want to get in before we wrap it up? Um, I was just thinking then, like, how there's an interesting thing going on with the titles of all these films. Like, maybe, like, marking some of the intent of the filmmaker in each case. Hmm. Like... It, you know, that film's just called Pyrrhus Marnie, and that's, like, a super stripped-back character study. Mm. And, you know, you have Mr. Turner, when just, like, inserting the Mr. <laughs> like, sort of says so much. Mm. Um, or, like, the Mill and the Cross. There's very there's not a clue, like, really in that to, like, a casual view of, like, what's this about? I guess Love is the Devil is an interesting one I'd 
bring into that or whatever where it was I guess because they weren't allowed to use any Francis Bacon work or any of, the, any of his letters or any of his actual like biographical details all they were left with was like salaciousness yeah and <laughs> kind of poetic license as yeah. well like lost for life yeah I guess well Went to college, studied art To be an artist, make a start Studied hard, gained my degree No one seemed to notice me Painter man, painter man Who would be a painter man? Painter man, painter man Who would be a painter man? So the last film we're going to talk about on today's podcast, it's been an epic journey through <laughs> art, is Peter Watkins is one of the many patron saints of the podcast. Absolutely. His 1974 film about Edvard Munch called... Edvard Munch. <laughs> it is indeed. And I guess when he made it, it was a new form of documentary and biopic filmmaking, and no one really picked it up either. Edvard Munch is played by Gia Westby, who, friend of the show, Kieran said, was just so expressionless that he found it a hard way to get into such an interesting film. Mm-hmm. Basically, sorry if I mishandled your words. But it's such an interesting way because um, we talked about Watkins on the show before. Um, his voice is ever present in pretty much all of the films apart from The Commune, and it's constantly like 1893. Penicillin is discovered and <laughs> Pearl Harbor is declared a US territory. <laughs> but this is one of the ones, of all the ones we talked about, that had an insane degree of interiority despite the fact that the dude has a totally expressionless face and you're just mm. listening to Peter Watkins do really in the years. But there's also so much new stuff brought to it. Yeah. And also I think this film has like one of the best depictions of like the act of painting you know like when you're seeing like monk paint here it's super convincing sure. i think like maybe on a level of eternity's gate sure. in that respect yeah i fully agree and not just monk's painting it also includes some great lithography and printmaking sequences as the film progresses and all those scenes are super tactile as you said and also very typically of watkins has so much historical texture not just like the fat drops but the milieu we've got Strindberg in the house and it's a very sort of lived in world that they're depicting I guess because it has all this um psychic drama going on where like you're seeing him paint and then you also just get he flashes back to like three or four just like really distinct memories a consumptive person like coughing up blood or like his first romantic encounter by the water I think it's himself coughing up blood as a child they all seem to have tuberculosis or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But it seemed, it says that that like death of a sick girl was like the pivotal pain. Yeah, yeah. I love Edvard Monk. I don't know about you folks. Yeah. Um, I thought a bit about Monk when I was looking at your paintings this... Mm, interesting. This week. I think it's also like, it's unusual in this like set of films and like the repetition of it. Like returning to set pieces almost like again and again and different scenes he'll be having the almost this exact same conversation again with like his lover or his dad being like you've come in late again what were you doing out and 
I don't know. That's like uh, unusual in like the documentary genre, let alone in like the painter film genre. Mm. There's something I really wanted to ask you about with relation to many of these films, but also this film. Where like I've read certain quotes. One was by John Berger. I think he was writing about the horse's mouth, actually. Mm. Yeah, he wrote an essay about um, criticizing Talking about how uh, filmmakers like mutilate, in inverted commas, paintings by zooming in on details mm. of the frame and um, like betray the compositions. Yeah. Where you're just looking at like brush strokes, like really intensely zoomed in. Which, yeah. especially when you're seeing it in the cinema, just mad to behold because you're looking at millimeters but how do you feel as a painter of that if, if someone takes like a photo of your of a detail of your thing or if you do that yourself or whatever but... um interesting i think like it serves a purpose in the films because like it's like that's such a loaded moment of action you know mm-hmm. to like make one brush stroke and it's also like probably easier to represent that than to represent like a painting in full being made um i don't have like a problem of it like berger does and like i i don't know i kind I mean, of I think he did it a bit in his tv documentaries as yeah well, yeah <laughs> if i may i think uh showing that like sort of texture of the painting is like quite an essential like sort of psychological component of showing the creative process and yeah it, the the close-up of the the canvas regardless of what you feel of it is like a central aspect of like so many of these films. I guess it's also like an intimacy thing where like again, if it's like perspectival, it brings us as close as possible to the the image. This is also which made me thought that like now with like the digital media that we have, like we can get closer to paintings than we ever have been able to mm, before. Yeah, yeah. If you look at like old like art books or whatever they're like shitty black and white facsimiles of like a detail yeah, yeah. whereas now you can go and like google arts and culture whatever it is yeah, yeah, yeah. With that and, shit. It's so crazy. and you can zoom you can zoom in or they have this like crazy like high def camera with like crazy lenses and magnification where you can like really get up close to the brush strokes like we're, we're in an extremely privileged position now to see this stuff but mm. i guess these films have served that function in the past before that technology yeah. exists of like really trying to bring us as close as possible yeah. and again as like a perspectival thing and that that's also kind of what painting is you know it's like a constant conversation between a detail and a whole and mm. uh, I think Schnabel really understands that in Eternity's Gate and like depicts that really well and I thought that like Watkins did as well and I don't think that it's true that that it makes you lose a sense of the whole Mm -hmm. I think all these films like give you a sense of a whole as well you know Mm. um I think it's kind of necessary for like actually like psychologically necessary like what is painting like it's like focusing on a detail and then seeing how that affects an entire thing you know and that's like a privileged possibility through film yeah yeah as well like yeah really you know zone in or whatever yeah hone in it's one of the best things a film about paintings can do especially on the cinema screen i said that already (laughs) (laughs) um i think we should leave it there edvard munk is a classic film you will never see anything like it dear listener watch it folks (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I hope we've encouraged people to pursue a lot of these films. We're, we will post the full filmography of the films we've discussed today. And thank you again so much, Louis, for Thanks so much for having us. me, guys. It's been a real pleasure watching all these films and thinking about them in like a new way. Hey, it's <clears> nice <throat> to hear. May I reiterate, dear listener, if you're in London, please go and see Louis' show at the Kristen Hjellegjerde Nice. gallery in Wandsworth um, before the 31st of July the show is called Ariel it's so beautiful I think your art is so great honestly there's only one painter we could have asked on this podcast <laughs> um, well when they make my biopic I'll come back for a special episode what's it going to be like <laughs> what, what scenes do you want to see in your biopic out of okay so Chalamet He's, he's playing me. Yeah, first, right, first right, of course he is. <laughs> uh, it's only details, there's no holes. Um, <laughs> and it's all a big murder conspiracy. Perfect. Yeah. What are the tunes like? Baroque, Baroque tunes quoting Henry Purcell recorded with electric guitars over the top. I loved that Oh Solitude after Purcell painting uh, thanks, New York. Mm. I think especially because you're... The compositions are often so like uh, vignetted or like fragmented or whatever, and then to have that one that didn't really have that, or yeah, whatever, yeah. at the back of the room was such a an actual moment to walk yeah, through. Yeah. While I'm on that, I thought the I want to hold your hand where the kids are holding hands, and like you don't see their hands holding at the bottom of the. Sorry, I'm just describing something that is ineffable or whatever. So <laughs> sorry, this. but then you can tell it's at the front of the kid's mind or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like, foregrounded at the top yeah so sick thanks man. so sick um yeah i would say that i think your canvases certainly have a cinematic quality mm. um especially in the vignetting and the way that you you know your compositions sort of defy uh the canvas or whatever yeah, yeah. Or make the most out of it yeah i also like just the faces in your work in general i like the dude who looks like jean gaban or whatever who's holding the canvas yeah, he does a lot of jungle in the, man, in the cloisters or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that one was so cool. Just fucking go see it, guys. It's a great room. Great two rooms. It's a great exhibition. Thank you. Louis, thanks for being on the podcast. Big love, guys. Hope I can come back again. <laughs> Any fucking time. There's still loads of painter films we want to talk. We didn't even talk about the Montparnasse film, the only one we watched together, the one about Modigliani. Yeah, we watched it. tried to watch it together. Sam left halfway through... And it fell asleep half an hour before the end. Yeah. I was the last man standing in that boring, boring film. I'd had it on my shelf for years. I was really looking forward to watching it. I love Modigliani as well, but... You I was just a heroic painter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the I was model. Just, I was just, oh, maybe this bit was directed by Offals or whatever. But it was just... <laughs> didn't even need to paint. It was just about a toxic dude. Anyway, the history of painters on film. Part one. Done. <laughs> I've been Emma. Prime Town. I'm Louis. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Two, three. Oh, the streets of Rome Filled with rubble Aged footprints There are Double. On a cold
finished those. Got to hurry on back to my hotel room. Where I got me a date with Botticelli's niece. Someday everything is gonna be Daylight. 